Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. As coronavirus cases continue to climb across the U.S., we take a look at how our community is preparing. As of this taping on Thursday, there were fewer than a dozen confirmed cases of coronavirus in Arizona. But that number is likely to change quickly. And due to what many medical experts say is insufficient testing, the current number of cases likely does not accurately reflect the full spread of the outbreak. At the start of the week, State Health Director Kara Christ said Arizona should expect to see thousands of cases. On Wednesday, Governor Doug Ducey declared a state of emergency, which frees up additional state funds to cover things like testing and treatment associated with the virus. Dr. Francisco Garcia is Pima County's chief medical officer. We asked him if Arizona should be preparing itself for a surge of cases. Complicated question, right? So, so first of all, I, what, what the state health department director was alluding to was there are probably a lot of people who have the virus, who have mild disease, who will never actually need anything. And that may be the case. And and that happens every year with the flu. That happens with the non-novel coronavirus that causes uh, the cold. Uh, you know, plenty of people um, get respiratory bugs and get over them uh, on their own. We know that 80% of people who come into contact with COVID-19 or who are infected with the virus that causes COVID-19 are going to be just fine. So so should we be prepared? Absolutely. Absolutely we should be prepared. And what does preparation look like? Um, and I think that that's where, where it's really important to, to think about um, what our own role is in the transmission of this disease. It is really, really critical that people who stay that people who are sick stay the heck away from the workplace, from school, from public gatherings, from going to Costco and waiting in lines for toilet paper. Uh, it's just crazy um, for that to be occurring. So so I think that that's number one. Um, and all the respiratory precautions that people had talked about, covering their cough, et cetera, not touching their faces, washing hands, all those things, you just need to double down on them. When it comes to personal responsibility and you think you're sick, you don't know if you have COVID-19, but you think you're sick, should you go call your primary care physician? Should you go to the ER? What should you do? That's a really good question because I think that there's a sense that um, that I need my COVID-19 test today. So, so put yourself in this position. Think about what you were doing two months ago and if you were experiencing these same symptoms, X, Y, and Z, would you have gone to the doctor? If the answer is yes, then you go to the doctor now. If the answer is no, then you don't. You know, most of us who get a cold might miss a half day of work, might miss a day of work, um, feel fine, go back. Um, hopefully when we're completely asymptomatic, never even call a doctor. Might take a Tylenol if it really sort of pressed, uh, but most of us will not have uh, an, an encounter with the medical system. So I think the same logic applies here. And in fact, it's important that if you decide that you're sick enough to to go see the doctor, you're having high fever, you're having uh, shortness of breath, you're really having lots of cough, and you know, um, if you decide that you're sick enough 
to go to the doctor, it's important to go to the right level of doctor, right? So so this is when you call up your primary care provider and say, geez, I'm having a cough and fever, um, chills, I'm not feeling well, um, I know I have something you know, um, bothering my respiratory tract, what do you want me to do? She will tell you then to either go to her facility or go somewhere else uh, where appropriate specimen collection can be done and where appropriate assessment can be done. Because God, honestly, you know, this is happening at the same time that the allergy season is starting. So there are a lot of other things that it can be. We are hearing more and more local governments, organizations canceling conferences, the Tucson Festival of Books, all kinds of things like that, sporting events, the democratic debate. Is that helpful? You know, it's one of those things that it kind of depends, right? So so just to be clear, sometimes organizers cancel events for logistical reasons. If more than a third of your authors are going to not show up, you might reconsider whether you have the event or not. It wasn't done, I don't believe, for a public health reason. It certainly our advice wasn't that that happened. So what should we do when we're trying to live our lives, when we're trying to do the thing? So should you go to the Santana concert, right? Um, it, you know, I, I think you need to exercise logic and, and personal responsibility. If you are older, if you have medical conditions that compromise your immune system, if you're just not feeling well that day, um, you might want to avoid that. You know, but but I really do think that our community is pretty smart, um, and I think if we give them those kinds of parameters, most people are going to do the right thing. We're talking with Dr. Francisco Garcia. He's the deputy county administrator and chief medical officer for Pima County. When it comes to testing, we have heard stories of people who are exhibiting symptoms who can't get tested. We've heard stories of people who came into contact possibly with someone who was sick but are not exhibiting symptoms who are getting tested. What's the criteria for deciding who gets tested and who doesn't? So understand a couple of things. So first of all, that that the testing criteria are not created by Francisco Garcia, Pima County. The the testing criteria are, are promulgated from the Centers for Disease Control. Um, and also understand a second thing that up until Friday, uh, the only testing capacity in this state was at the state public health lab. That was the only entity in the entire state of Arizona that was doing any testing. And they only had 300 tests, or enough tests to test about 300 folks. So that situation is very different now. Commercial entities, including Quest and LabCorp and Kaijin and a fourth one, have entered into the fray. Those tests are being conducted in national laboratories. So the test is not being done in Phoenix. It's being sent to San Juan Capistrano. And you can imagine what the bottleneck's going to be. So a friend of a friend of a friend thinks they might have been in contact with COVID. And I feel fine. Do I need to be tested? Absolutely not. On the other hand, I just got off a cruise ship and I have been symptoms. Do I need to be tested? Yes. So very different scenarios that that trigger that threshold of testing or not. From a Pima County health perspective, are the hospitals ready? Do they have the necessary respirators, isolation areas if we do see a big surge here? So that's part of the reason why we need to keep people getting care at the right level of, of, of the community. 
because we don't want to clog up our emergency rooms. We don't want to clog up ICUs. We don't want to clog up the system, right? So we are talking every day to the CEOs, the chief medical officers, the chief operating officers from our hospitals. So if we play our hands right, we should have that kind of capacity and we should have the ability to meet this challenge. But that is predicated on people doing the right and smart thing, which is staying out of emergency rooms if they don't need to be there. Based on past experience, H1N1, how long is this going to last? Well, this is hard, right? Um, So in China, we're starting to see the downslope of the curve uh, now more than three to four months um, since it started. Um, So, so, uh, you know, I think this is just beginning. Uh, In this country, it just essentially began with the cases in the King County area. And I think that we are at the at the beginning of this issue. Pima County is very different from Seattle King County. We're very different from New York. We're very different from Los Angeles. Much less density, much less cosmopolitan, much less tightly spaced um, uh, communities. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think we are in a better position to get through this than many communities are. The internet is a wonderful thing. It's full of information. It's not always full of good information, though. Where should people turn to get valuable, truthful information on this? Accurate, locally relevant information is is being hosted and curated by ourselves at www.pima.gov backslash or forward slash COVID-19. And we're updating that. We're looking at that website every day. Uh, we're trying to figure out what is missing and what is not missing. And and you know what? The CDC is is giving us changing guidance almost on a every couple day basis. So we, we're, we're needing to do that. I think that that's the place that you start. We are still in flu season. How does flu season and COVID-19 come together in hospitals, uh, at doctor's offices, when it comes to getting the right care for the right person for the right issue? COVID-19 and influenza are not that uh, different from each other. The, the, the one big thing to remember is that, that unlike influenza, where there is a... Um, where there is a vaccine and where we have proven antiviral therapies, there is no such thing for COVID-19. But clinically, they will present the same way. COVID-19, the, the, the treatment for it is, is, we call it supportive treatment, which means we just address your symptoms, we keep you alive if you're in the ICU. Uh, we take care of the other things that are that are uh, affecting you. So, so it becomes really important um, for uh, folks for clinicians to be able to differentiate. And in fact, one of the criteria for COVID-19 testing is, have you already excluded other stuff like influenza, which is a hell of a lot more common in this community than COVID-19? Is COVID-19 more deadly than the flu? Because we have so many flu cases. Hard question to answer uh, with factual data today. Um, but what I can tell you is that Two years ago, um, we had over 200 deaths in Pima County that were associated with influenza. Depending on your perspective, that's a little or that's a lot. Do I think this is going to be significantly different? Probably not a whole heck of a lot different. So 
So, you know, the story is yet to be told. What I can tell you is the data that we have today really reflects a bias sample of people who are really, really, really sick because those are the ones that are getting tested. But we also know that in places like Korea that have much broader testing criteria, much more, broad, more available tests than we do here in the United States, it's probably a hell of a lot less deadly than those other estimates. But the, you know, this is still an evolving situation and I think we need to be careful and cautious about making predictions. All right, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Happy to do it. That was Pima County Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Francisco Garcia. We reached out to Banner UMC, Tucson Medical Center, and the Southern Arizona VA Hospital to ask about their preparedness for a surge of coronavirus cases. Banner and TMC did not make anyone available for an interview, but in a statement, the VA hospital said it's doing verbal pre-screening of anyone entering its campus and following CDC guidance. This week is spring break for Arizona's two largest universities, which means this weekend students will be returning from domestic and international trips far and wide. Late Wednesday night, the University of Arizona announced classes will not resume until next Wednesday and will be largely online until at least April 6th. The announcement came hours after Arizona State University made a similar decision. We made a number of requests to talk with University of Arizona administrators about their plans. Those requests were all denied. The UA Campus Health Department says it's been working on coronavirus preparedness for the last month and is clearing non-essential appointments for next week with the expectation of treating students returning from spring break. David Solovsky, Director of Health Promotion for Campus Health, says they currently have sufficient equipment and personal protective gear but don't have a surplus of supplies. This week, we've seen the number of U.S. coronavirus cases climb, spurring the cancellation of many conferences, gatherings, and sporting events. We've also seen increases in telework and online classes for colleges and universities. As just two examples, the Tucson Festival of Books was canceled after more than a third of authors backed out due to travel concerns, and the presidential primary debate scheduled this Sunday in Phoenix was first declared audience-free and then moved to Washington, D.C. Matt Hines is a Tucson emergency room doctor who also worked in the Obama White House and is a former member of the state legislature. He says for now, many people with a cough or fever may just have a standard cold, but advises the public to use common sense. If you don't feel that great and you're coughing a little bit, sneezing a little bit, the most important thing to do is to take care of yourself with reasonable over-the-counter items and stay home. Don't go into work and potentially infect others with very likely your cold. But just, just be sensible about that. And again, hand washing frequently, hand sanitizer. You spent some time in the Obama administration dealing with health issues. What did you do with the administration? So uh, my formal title was Director of Provider Outreach, and I did a lot of work in, uh, with regard to the Affordable Care Act as that was being implemented, helping hospital systems and nurses and doctors and pharmacists throughout the country just kind of adapt to that and figure out how to make it work better for us, for the patients. 
And while there, it just so happened that the Ebola uh, epidemic broke out in West Africa, and the administration was, I think, did very well, uh, responded very, very quickly. I had some uh, role in coordinating domestic response, and that is um, getting the correct folks, um, you know, in charge of the various hospital systems and emergency response systems to the White House to, to um, help with basically drilling about uh, personal protective equipment, uh, the various things we need to do to protect ourselves should we fear an Ebola case, um, you know, in our ERs. Um, very, very few cases ever happened, uh, which is what you want. You want people to be prepared, have the supplies they need at our hospitals, at our ERs, and have a protocol in place and hopefully never have to use it. Um, and that, I think, worked really well. Another thing in the Obama administration, um, because there weren't the, the kind of cuts we've seen, unfortunately, that have occurred over the past few years, there were deployable assets, global health, um, you know, in coordination with the CDC, WHO, NIH, they would deploy National Health Service Corps uh, personnel would go into West Africa and help the folks there treat treat the condition, but also teach the providers, the nurses and doctors in those countries how to deal with it themselves, and 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 thereby keeping it there, right? And I think that's something that we we really lost a lot of that. You were also in the state legislature, so you have some some interesting inside views of government. What does the government need to be doing, or is there anything the government really can do when it comes to an outbreak, a pandemic like COVID-19? Well, sure. I think the most important thing is to make sure that the people have the correct information about what to do to, to, to be sensible, to protect themselves. Anything they can do, again, with the hand washing, get your flu vaccine, stay home if you're feeling sick um, so as to not infect any others with whatever you may have. Um, but just to really having a source of information that we know that we can trust and that can be will be consistent and provide that information to us so that we really know what's going on. The worst thing that we can have happen during these sorts of epidemics or pandemics is just panic. You know, government bureaucracy, not very interesting, but this is the time when you want it, right? This is, these are the folks that prepare for this at the CDC. These are the experts that we need to hear from, uh, this trusted guidance and information. And that's what our local Pima County Health Department is doing, is conveying on a regular basis, and what the CDC is conveying as well. When it comes to all of your backgrounds mixing together, if you were king for a day, what would you do with your government knowledge, with your medical knowledge to handle this? One of the one of the deficits or deficiencies I've noted is that the testing, and I say this personally because I've had patients I've wanted to test um, at my facility that we've been unable to test because there's an hours and if not days long procedure to go through very bottleneck testing um, at the get-go. This was something that they knew was going on in China, I believe, at the very end of November to into the top of December. So uh, I Typically, like with Ebola and other issues like this, we've seen that the that the United States has been right out front with testing, and and testing was never a question. If you needed to test for X Y Z illness, of course you had the test. That's just a question I, as a provider, wasn't even expecting to have to ask. Hey, can we get a test kit? We really need that information. So being able to empower our nurses and doctors and the healthcare system and the emergency departments to to get those test kits so that we can figure out what exactly is going on, um, where where people have that virus so we can take care of it and take care of them properly and of course protect those in the community and those of us in the healthcare profession as well. 
That was Tucson ER doctor Matt Hines. While the Arizona Department of Health Services says risk for the coronavirus locally still remains low, uncertainty is driving some people into preparation mode. Ole Teenhouse is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arizona. With reports that stores are running out of toilet paper and other supplies, we asked Dr. Teenhouse to help explain what drives such behavior. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, sometimes these purchases are quite out of proportion to the actual situation. And I think from a sort of psychological point of view, what you can assume that a uh, coming or feared ec- epidemic like the coronavirus, you know, stimulates very basic fears in people, okay? And the worst part of that fear is the sense that it's something is out of control. There's something coming that you have no power over. And so people try to find out what aspects they might have some control over. And going out and buying, you know, flashlights and toilet paper and, and uh, what have you is uh, a little bit of a... a a way of dealing with this profound anxiety that comes from having to confront a a power or a fate that you have very little uh, handle over. What other things can this type of fear lead to in addition to panic buying when it comes to how we as humans act? Well, it actually can bring out some very positive things in people, okay? Uh, you know, America's more famous for rugged individualism. Uh, in, a, in a situation where a, uh, a epidemic threatens, people are really forced to coordinate their actions with others. And so you have to give up some of the uh, selfishness in order to protect the community. So you will have to forego doing certain things that you might have otherwise done. For example, in Italy right now, you know, they only allow one person at a time into a grocery store. So if you need something, you may have to communicate with your neighbor. Can you bring that over for me when it's your turn because I'm not in for 12 more hours, okay? It also um, motivates some of our uh, commercial enterprises to be uh, to rediscover a bit of a community spirit. Some of the wholesaler, those Sam's Club, Costco type of uh, stores, I understand, have begun to ration the amounts of uh, uh, supplies they give out because even though it might be the best business for them to have you know somebody buy thousands of rolls of toilet paper, they realize that this is just unfair to the population at large. So there's some actually communitarian consequences that you could look to in these situations. Of course, we see some people who are acting in those panic buying behaviors, and then there are other people that say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Everything is fine. How, how do we as humans define our risk tolerance? Well, first of all, let me address these different types of behaviors. You know, in psychological terms, you might say those are different defense mechanisms, if you uh, don't mind a technical term here. Uh, you know, one is, is denial. Oh, it won't ha- happen to me. You know, that's other people's problem. And the other one is overprotective. I need a sense of control. I need to know that there is, you know, a, a million batteries in the house and so forth. You know, what is risk-taking? And what kind of tolerance do we have? And that varies for all sorts of people. You know, we live here in Tucson. I have discussed this uh, elsewhere before. When when we have the uh, the monsoon rains, you know, who are the people who go through the, those areas where when it's flooded, you should stay out or whatever it says on those signs? You know, who is foolhardy enough to risk 
possibly their lives, but certainly a big fine by getting stuck in a, in a flood. Same thing here. There are some people who just um, have a confidence and often a disproportionate confidence in terms of realistic expectations that this can't this can't harm me, okay? Uh, you may say they have a little bit of grandiosity, or maybe they are uh, uneducated, underinformed, or what's, what have you. And then there are other people who blow it out of proportion, and as we discussed, you know, stock up on items they don't even likely need for the uh, crisis coming. How much of our individual reaction is also based on our past experience? Uh, we had a bad flu season one year, and I didn't get the flu. I was fine, so I can ignore all the warnings. Or I did get the flu, and I was very sick, so now I have to maybe overreact to that. Absolutely. So there are basically, I would say, there are three elements involved. One is definitely past experience that informs current behavior that holds for all sorts of behavioral choices we make. The other one is genetic. There are people, it runs in families. You know, the you know my my, my dad was rodeo rider. I he never broke a bone and so you know you have that daredevil spirit sort of inbred from from your family history and the third one is you know really uh the the more rational type who will do a risk benefit analysis and decide uh you know the the infection rate of this particular virus is less than xyz and uh, because in the neighborhood i live there are very few people who are likely to carry this virus I, i i won't worry about it for me but you know my my dad is in a nursing home, other frail people, lots of germs running around from people coming in. So I will definitely make sure, you know, he is has all the face masks in the world at his disposal. So that's would be in my book, the three elements that uh, work into a, a risk profile for an individual. If you see friends, family, co-workers really scared about this, how do you keep yourself calm in these types of situations? Well, that, again, depends on what kind of personality you are. You know, myself, I tend to be sort of cerebral and irrational and uh, use that as an avenue to tell people, you know, this is these are the facts and this will work. Now, as a psychiatrist, I know that does not reach everybody, that kind of approach. In that, uh, when I find that to be the case, I really try to be, uh, be empathic with their fear and say, you're not alone in this, okay? We will see this through and maybe I have some history history that and from their background that I can use to demonstrate that they've gone through a tougher crisis than this one. Does the old adage of take a deep breath really work to maybe break a cycle even? It's very much the case. This is what uh, we it, it teach patients to cope with anxiety disorders, to learn certain breathing techniques, to uh, reduce the need for either alcohol or pharmaceuticals. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us and exploring why we all act the way we do. It's my, my daily life, yes. That was Dr. Oli Teenhaus, the head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arizona. And that's the buzz for this week. Follow our newscasts, website, and social media channels for continued reporting on the coronavirus outbreak. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. And Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.